your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel Vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. In some ways, we come to the hardest of all of the passages of of these chapters. And I say that not to apologize, but to just remind us, this is is hard stuff. Uh, This is serious stuff. Um, But... It's the Word of God. And as I've been saying to you, when it comes to these hard passages, we have to submit our own thoughts about what seems right and seems good to the Word of God and believe the Word of God over our own desires. Just to follow on what Dari was saying, we cannot ponder our lives for very long without concluding that God is very, very gracious with us. He is kind. He is patient. He is gentle. 
He is forgiving. His mercies are new every morning. When you woke up this morning, yesterday's sins, yesterday's failures, yesterday's laziness, yesterday's active sins, they were all deleted, all gone, all erased from the memory banks because today God said, my mercy is new for you. And he blesses us with many gifts, good health, family, friends, comforts, pleasures, ice cream, no amens for that? And even when he withholds those things, he's already given us the greatest possible expression of love in the cross. To send his own son to take upon his person our eternal wrath that we deserve. And then to say to us, it may be that for some years you will experience suffering and affliction, but that suffering and affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. God is good to his children. And yeah, it gets tough, and it's not all fun and games, and it's not all ice cream, but even through the hardships, we know it's, there's a time limit on those hardships, and someday we will enter into glory and forever be with the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased us, who died for us, who secured eternity in the new heavens and new earth with him forever. He's a good God. And we cannot read the scripture for very long with seeing how good he is. On every page from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation, God is telling the story of Jesus, of our Savior, of our Redeemer, of the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And God reminds us of this day in and day out, page after page, chapter after chapter in the Scripture. God is love, and He wants us to know that. But on occasion, we need to be reminded that God is God. And today is one of those occasions. Every now and then, he needs to remind us that he is holy and righteous and just, that he is powerful, omnipotent, sovereign. On occasion, he reminds us that his judgments are unsearchable, that his ways are unfathomable, that his ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, that he takes counsel from no man, and that he is not indebted to any man or woman. That in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. It's his world. All that is in the earth is his. We need to be reminded that if he had not gathered to gather the dirt and breathed life into it, neither you nor I would be here this morning. And if he did not right now, this very second, determined by his sheer power and will to keep the molecules of our body together, we would disintegrate into nothing instantly. Sometimes he needs to remind us of this. That we have no claim on God, and we can't even be born, choose to be born, choose to exist, choose to continue on. We can't do anything. We owe our very existence to God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And on occasion, God reminds us that He is God. Today is one of those occasions. I don't know who in this room needs to be reminded of this the most. I don't know if there are some here today who have become cynical or careless or grumbly or presumptive or demanding of God. I don't know if there are some here perhaps who believe they could do a better job of running the world or at least a better job of running your life, orchestrating your life, or perhaps the need is something else altogether. I don't know, but I would invite us all to humble ourselves before our mighty creator and be reminded of who he is and who we are. God may have brought you here today to hear this message because you need it. May he give us all ears to hear. To bring us back into the context, very briefly, context of Romans 9, I remind you that Paul has just declared that God hardens some people so that they will not obey him. And Pharaoh is the illustration. God commanded Pharaoh to let Israel go. And then he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would be too stubborn to do it. And then God punished Pharaoh for not doing it. That's verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And Paul concludes, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And this provokes an objection. How can God hold Pharaoh accountable for his disobedience? If Pharaoh's obstinance was because God made him obstinate, how can Pharaoh be accountable for it? God, God did it. Pharaoh can't resist his will. It's unfair. See, Paul knows that some of you would be here. He knew some of you 2,000 years from now would be sitting here right now saying, that's not fair. 
He responds with three points. Number one, it is not man's place to raise this objection against God. That's verse 20a. Number two, it is God's right to do what he wants with his creatures. That's 20b through 21. Number three, God would be right to condemn sinners instantaneously, but he is patient with them so that his grace is magnified. Verses 22 to 23, we'll take those in that order. Number one, it is not man's place to raise this objection against God. Verse 20 says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Here's our objection again. Pharaoh should not be blamed for his hardness, his stubbornness. And Israel should not be blamed for their blindness. And unbelievers should not be blamed for their unbelief if God is the one who hardens and blinds. They can't help it. They have no choice. Therefore, they shouldn't be held accountable. That's how we reason. That's how we object. This is how we think. And it seems like a reasonable conclusion to us. If a man is not entirely self-determined when he makes choices, then he can't be accountable for those choices, right? Either a man's will is absolutely free or he's not accountable for what he does. That's how we think. It seems so right. It seems so fair to ask the question. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what God says is true? Does God agree that a person is not accountable for their sin if they are not entirely self-determined in making their choice? Let's look at a couple of passages. In Isaiah chapter 10, we see a familiar refrain. This is kind of an old record, broken record as we used to say. Some of you younger people have no idea what that means. But as Isaiah 10, Israel has become corrupt. That's the repeated part. They were corrupt a lot. They've made unjust laws for the people. They've robbed from the poor. They've exploited helpless widows and orphans. And God says, I'm going to punish you. This is six or seven centuries before Christ. He's going to bring another nation, Assyria, to demolish and destroy them. And they're going to find no place to run and hide from God. This is how the first four verses of Isaiah 10 goes. Woe to those who make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees, and this is to the, uh, to the Jewish leaders, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. And speaking of God, he says, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand not still upraised. Nothing surprising here. God sends prophets dozens and dozens of times to warn the Jews of the coming judgment. He sees their disobedience. If they don't repent, this is what's going to happen. And they don't repent, and this is what's going to happen. That's not surprising, none of this. Again, we could go to passage after passage after passage where this kind of thing goes on. But what is surprising is what happens next. God turns against Assyria, the very nation that he is bringing against Israel. Look at this, verse 5 and following. 
Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation, speaking of Israel. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? Has not Kalno fared like Carchemish in Is not Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? As my hand sees the kingdom of the idols, kingdoms whose images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? Here's God again. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria. For the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this. And by my wisdom, because, of, uh, I, because I have understanding, I have removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As men gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. No one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. God again. Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Or the saw boast against him who uses it? As if a rod were to wield him who lifts it up or a club Brandish him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. Under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. Flame, rather. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the Assyrian king's perspective? He freely chose to destroy Jerusalem. God didn't tell him to do it. God didn't force him to do it. He wanted to. He decided to expand his kingdom. He formulated the war plan. He moved against Jerusalem just as he had done to a number of other cities and nations with a desire to conquer, and he succeeded. And he bragged about it. He praised his own power and strength and military superiority. He said it was as easy as picking eggs up out of a nest. Today we would say it's like taking candy from a baby. It was simple. And did you notice the bit about the other idols, the other images? He's saying, I have conquered all these other nations, and they had bigger gods than Jerusalem. Their idols, their gods were stronger, so Jerusalem's going to be nothing for me. Look at me. Look what I've done. That's the king of Assyria's perspective. He's going to wipe out Israel because he wants to. If you could ask him, that would be his version of the story. But there's another version, another perspective. God's. Assyria was nothing more than the rod that God was using to punish Israel. 
He was just the axe God was using to chop down the tree that was Jerusalem. He was the saw in God's hands to cut up the Jewish people. And God was not happy with the king's boasting. So do you see what happened here? God wanted Assyria to trounce the Jews. So he moved the king to war. Yet the king moved himself to war. God and the king acting simultaneously and concurrently against Israel. God, what he, what God got what he wanted. The Assyrian king got what he wanted too. And then he faced punishment for doing what God had ordained for him to do. Even though it was God's purpose and plan, the king of Assyria was still held accountable for what he had done. That's God's perspective of these things. Another example, and we could pile them up from the Old Testament, but another example from the New Testament. You remember in the book of Acts, chapter 4, where the disciples have been detained by the Jewish leaders, and they are told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But in this case, they, hadn't, they didn't find any good reason to punish them, so they let him go. At least, mostly they were afraid of how the people would respond. So they let him go under strict orders, under pain of punishment, to stop preaching the gospel. So this is what happened. Chapter 4, verse 24. And when they heard this, they, so, so they went back and, and told the rest of the disciples what had been uh, said by the Jewish leaders. When they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That was from Psalm 2. Now they say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The disciples knew that the opposition against Jesus had been predicted. They knew that Psalm 2 was declaring that the people would turn against the Christ when he comes. And they're saying, God prophesied through David of these things. Now the question is, was it simply a matter of foreknowledge? Back a thousand years before this happened, did God look into his crystal ball and see, oh, when I send my son down there, you know what they're going to do to him? They're going to kill him. Hey, David, write this down. Is that what happened? Like, like that mysterious... Uh, uh, <laughs> like a bird feeder. What's the thing in Lord of the Rings? They pour the picture in, they look in, the eye of Sauron's there, and, and the different characters can see little glimpses of what's going to happen next. Is that what happened? That God looks into his, his magic lens and sees, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm planning to send my son, and if I do that, they're going to they're put him on the cross. It's not what the disciples said. 
to these men, Pilate and Herod and the rest of the Gentiles and the Jewish rulers, they all conspired against Jesus because God had predetermined that they would. And yet, God didn't show up to Pilate and say, I know you don't want to do this, but you need to sentence my son to death. Pilate did it freely. And Herod did what he did freely. And the Roman soldiers who nailed the cross, nailed the nails into his hands and the cross, did it freely. And the people who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, were not inside saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to see him hurt. They did what they wanted to do, and at the same time, they did what God had predetermined would come to pass, and they paid the price of God's judgment for killing his son. This is what the Bible teaches. This is how things are. God is sovereign over everything, and men are responsible for their sins. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was accountable for disobeying. It is important to notice how Paul does not respond to this objection. He doesn't give us any philosophical explanation. He doesn't give us some kind of a theological defense of God's character. He simply tells the questioner to remember who he is and who God is and to shut your mouth. Did you see that in verse 20? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? We must be very careful how we think and speak about these things. I have heard people say, if that's true, then God is the monster. He's worse than the devil. We must be very careful how we speak of God. Jesus encountered a group of people who didn't like what he had to say. And they were so opposed to him that they said, his power doesn't come from God, his power comes from the devil. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting of it on the day of judgment. Again, this is in the context of men who are saying, that's not who Jesus is. He's of the devil. And Jesus just looks at them and says, very soberly, be careful what you say. Because how you speak about God will be brought into the judgment. Next verse. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What we say about Jesus, what we say about God will prove on the day of judgment. Whether we believe in the God who is or a God that we have invented in our own imagination. These are not light things. God is sovereign and man is accountable for his sins and it is not our place to raise these objections against God. Krista asked me this morning if I was going to go to Job and I told her no 
that I'm not, except to say he really is a great illustration of this. Because he begins to question God. And when God shows up, he never answers a single question that Job raised about anything. He just said, look, little man, you're not God. I am. Be quiet. That's a paraphrase of those several chapters that talk about how great (laughs) God is. He says, Job, you go out and make a raindrop and then come back and we'll talk. We're dust. We're worms. We are powerless. And we want to look to God and say, you shouldn't be doing that. It's not right. It's not fair. Number two, it is God's right to do what he wants with his creatures, 20 and 21. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? There are two Old Testament passages that lie behind this statement. One is Isaiah 29. I'll just let me give you a summary of it. Again, Israel is sinning. God warns them. He warns Jerusalem that they are about to become Ariel, A-R-I-E-L. That's a Hebrew word that means a, an altar hearth. Think about what happens on altars. Things are burned and consumed on altars. He says, that's what's going to happen to you, Jerusalem. She will be filled with sorrow and weeping when she becomes the offering slaughtered on his altar. God is going to bring nations to attack. They will climb over the city walls, burst through the city gates. They will surround Jerusalem, cutting off all food supplies, making the citizens prisoners until they either die by the sword or starve to death. Their faces will be buried in the ground before their enemies. Their innumerable attackers will arise without warning, striking fear in the hearts of all as if a sudden devastating lightning storm or earthquake or deafening sound were falling upon them. All of this will come from God himself. And the appetite of these bloodthirsty adversaries will be insatiable. Israel will be astonished when it happens because God is going to quiet the voices of the prophets. And either they will be forbidden from knowing God's plans or they will be too dumb to understand the warnings. This is all God's punishment against Jerusalem for their hypocrisy and false religion. Their wisdom has become folly. They think they can hide their wickedness from God. They've become upside down and backwards in their stupidity. They think they are equal to God, independent of God, even superior to God. That's all in verses 1 through 15. This is verse 16. You turn things around, God says to them. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Israel thinks she has made herself, that she's not accountable to God, that he doesn't even know what she's doing. 
She's like a clay pot denying that the potter made it or even that he has the intelligence to do so. One of our favorite places on planet Earth is Estes Park. We went up there as a family a few, a few weeks ago, and one of the things we always do, and some of you have been here I know, is go to that glass-blowing shop. Been there? We love to go in there, and a couple of the days we were there, at least one, the guy was, was doing his thing, and it's just amazing how they do that. And fascinating to see him you know, dip, the, dip the rod into that stuff and blow on it and twirl around and stick in the oven and it just starts shaping and he taps on it and he does this and all, all of a sudden you have this vase, this, this observable, recognizable shape. It's, it's fascinating. And you look all around the shop and there hanging on the walls and on, uh, on shelves are plates and vases and pitchers and ornaments and all kinds of things. Now nobody walks into that shop saying, huh, look at all these self-made artifacts, right? You don't do that. Look at that plate that made itself into a perfectly round plate. No, we don't do that. But, but more absurd still is the thought that the plates think they made themselves. And yet that would, that's what God says, and Paul referring to that says, that's what happens when we try start talking back to God. You didn't make us. You have no right to do what you want to do. It's absurd. The clay pot was just a lump of useless dirt until the potter decided to shape it into something else. And yet there it is, claiming autonomy and superiority over the potter. It's ridiculous and worse it's rebellious. And Paul says we must be very careful not to respond this way when confronted with God's handling of his creatures. He can do what he wants with us. We see the same thing in Jeremiah 18. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house. And there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Declares the Lord, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull it down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Do you see? He says, all of the nations, all of the people, everything in the world, it's mine. And I have the right to take clay and fashion it into whatever shape I want. It's his prerogative.
took the, the clay and he shaped it and it became ruined. Did you see that the first time? It was ruined at first and so he made it into another shape. Paul has this as the backdrop when he says the potter has the right to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another vessel for dishonorable use. He can take some of the clay and make it into a very pretty vase. And he can take that same clay and out of it make a urine jar. And it's his right as the potter to do both. And it's not our right as the clay pots to say, you can't do that. That's not right of you to do that. Underlying all this is the fact that all of the clay is corrupt. Pharaoh was corrupt. Moses was corrupt. Israel was evil. All of us were evil. All of the clay that God starts with is sinful. And he takes that sinful lump and he does what he wants. So he can take a wicked Pharaoh, harden his heart against him, and makes a a vessel for dishonorable use. And he can take Moses and soften his heart and make him a vessel for honorable use. He can take some Jews and harden their hearts against the gospel and use them as a dis, in a dishonorable way. And he can take a smaller section of the Jews, those sitting right up here, for those of you who were here last week, they're still the elect right here, and take them and use them for honorable use, and he is just and right to do what he does. And therefore, some are... Esau's and some are Jacob's, some are Pharaoh's, some are Moses's, some are Judas, some are Peter. It's his prerogative. Again, Pharaoh was not seeking to please God. He didn't want to please God. In fact, isn't that what the Bible says is true of all of us? We are born dead in our sins, enemies of God, children of his wrath. Don't ever take this to believe that there are people who really, really, really desperately want to please God and says, nope, I won't let you. The truth of the matter is nobody ever wants to please him in our natural state. It's only those who in his mercy he transforms our desires and then we become people who want to. Number three, God would be right to condemn sinners instantaneously, but he is patient so that his grace may be magnified. Sometimes we ask the question, why has God tolerated sinners at all? Why not just wipe everybody out and be done with it? This answers that, verses 22 and 23. What if God, although willing, that means he willed to do this, he wanted to do this, though willing to demonstrate his wrath, And to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand 
for glory. People are in one of two categories. We're either vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. That's what Paul says. The people in both groups were prepared beforehand. That's what Paul says. The vessels of wrath were destined for destruction. The vessels of mercy were destined for glory. God had different purposes for each group. The vessels of wrath, like Pharaoh, were prepared so that he could show his power and his hatred of sin. The vessels of mercy were prepared so that he could show the riches of his glory. First of all, if he destroyed all sinners, there would be nobody left, right? But by allowing evil to continue, it shows those of us who are vessels of mercy what we deserve, what we have been saved from. We look at Pharaoh and say, how could he do that? What an obstinate, hard-hearted man to see all of God's power. How could he do that? And the response for us is to be, I would do that too if God had not been gracious with me and shown me the difference. And we look at the Pharisees and the Israelites and think, how could they have possibly put Jesus on the cross after seeing all that he did? And what God wants us to do is respond and say, I also would have put him on the cross if he had not opened my heart to see the truth. This is why God doesn't choose everybody. We ask that question, right? I'm sure you have. I've asked it. People ask it to me all the time. If this is true, why doesn't God choose everybody? This is your answer. Because he wants those of us who are vessels of mercy to understand what we've been saved from. We have been saved from the justice we deserve. And he desires to show his wrath. There's no easy way to get around that. This is why in chapter 11, Paul's going to say this. Verse 30, just as you once were disobedient, speaking to Gentiles, you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. So they have now become disobedient. God has hardened the Jews because of the mercy shown to you. He hardens, he shows mercy, he hardens, he shows mercy, so that the hardened group would see they need God's mercy, and so the merciful group would see we have been shown mercy. Thank you for not making me a vessel of wrath. Again, I'll say one more time, those who are vessels of wrath have no one to blame but themselves. They are getting what they deserve. It's not like they want to please God, they don't. And they will be held accountable for those things. But again, I want you to see why, where this all heads. What's the climax here? Verse 23, he did so to make known, to make it known, so that you would know it and I would know it, the riches of his glory, his glorious grace. What we are to take from this, we're not really supposed to ponder all of these things too much. When you try to figure this out, First of all, you're not going to be able to because his ways are not our ways and his judgments are unsearchable. 
Secondly, I think the more we try to answer questions about this, the closer and closer we get to the edge of heresy. God doesn't explain all the answers. He says, be quiet. Stop asking. I'm God. You're not. But what he does want us to do is to worship and to live lives of gratitude and thanksgiving and awe that we are vessels of mercy. To not question who are not vessels of mercy, to to not try to figure all that out, he wants us to step back and know that he is gracious and kind and loving, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you and for me. We should not be asking, God, why would you do any of this? We should be asking, why would you pick me? I don't deserve to have glory any more than Pharaoh did. I don't deserve to have a soft heart any more than the Pharisees did. When I was born, my heart could have easily been on the trajectory of an Adolf Hitler. And so could have yours. But God in his mercy said, I want you to know the glory of my grace. That's who he is. It's what he does. So I ask you two things. Number one, do you believe in the God who is? And amidst all his generosity and grace and kindness, do you recognize he is still God? And he doesn't do things the way we do. And he doesn't make his decisions to please us or to please our sense of righteousness. He's God. He does what he wants. And number two, do you understand how amazing it is that God picked you to receive his grace? If that doesn't humble us, if that doesn't make us sing with loud voices of joy, if that doesn't make us walk in thanksgiving and gratitude, probably nothing will. Because we all deserve to be vessels of wrath. And if we are Christians, we are vessels of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are stronger than our sin. That Jesus Christ has atoned for our sin. That you have chosen us and adopted us and you will glorify us because you love us. Father, we confess these are hard things. And even as regenerate, sanctified, spirit-filled people, there are parts of us at times that rebel against your godness. We ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would humble us and once again show us the sweetness of the gospel the sweetness of your grace. Father, I pray lastly that 
this would not in any way weaken our resolve to preach the gospel to others. When we start trying to figure out how this matches up with evangelism, we take, we draw theological conclusions that the Bible does not teach. The Apostle Paul who wrote these words gave his life begging and pleading with men to be reconciled to you, to believe the gospel. He did not see your sovereignty as merely a theological abstract concept. And he didn't use it as an excuse to occasionally preach the gospel. His life was devoted to calling men and women to faith. May we be like him and passionately preach Christ to others. We ask in his name.